What can we entrepreneurs learn from a 50-plus year career in stand-up comedy and Hollywood films? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, here's the question. How are we dark horses? You know, the ones everyone is betting against, the ones they don't expect to win, place, or even show on the track, and they'll even laugh on us when we talk about trying. How do we show the world our greatness and triumph? Well, that's the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. This is The Dark Horse Entrepreneur. My name is Tracy Brinkman. What's up, what's up, what the hell is up, my Dark Horse friends and family? Welcome back to your weekly dose of comedic and Hollywood film learning. I'm your Dark Horse host, Tracy Brinkman, and you, well, that, my friend, is infinitely more important. You are a driven entrepreneur or one in the making. Either way, you're here because you're ready to start, restart, kickstart, just start leveling up with some great marketing, personal, or business tips and results in order to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire it absolutely deserves to be. And man, do we have a superstar episode for you today. Today, Larry Hankin. Yeah, the man himself. And if you don't recognize the name, you'll recognize the face when you see it. Larry Hankin shares the importance of absorbing things, what we can learn from our hard times, finding your audience, and remembering to make them laugh, and so much more. You're going to love the stories that Larry is going to share and the lessons packed inside them. Plus, I'm going to let you in on next week interview episode guest who founded Hype Life Brands, which specializes in building, launching, and growing B2C and D2C lifestyle brands and startups. As per usual, the Dark Horse Corrals are chock full of personal, business, and marketing G-O-L-D spilling from every corner of the Dark Horse Entrepreneur HQ. So let's get to the starting gates and go. All right, my Dark Horse friends and family, today we've got a special interview, an extra special interview even. Today, our guest is none other than Larry Hankin. Now, Larry is an actor, performer, director, comedian, and producer. He's known for his major film roles as Charlie Butts in Escape from Alcatraz. He was Ace in Running Scared, Carl Alphonse in Billy Madison, and Larry also played Doobie in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Sergeant Balzac in Home Alone, Mr. Freckles in Friends, and Joe in Breaking Bad. All totaled, Larry has over 190 credits under his acting belt covering over five decades. But I don't want to steal all of Larry's thunder, so let's get stuck right in. All right, Larry, welcome to the Dark Horse Entrepreneur, man. man you know, I, I know I have been seeing you on the movie screen, the big screen and the little silver screen for what? five plus decades yeah. and, I, and I've been around that long. So I, I've seen you come up and just do all kinds of great things, but I wanted to, you know, obviously welcome you to the show. Usually what I step right into is, you know, I, I shut my running mouth and trust me, I can run my mouth um, and let you tell your story, but you have such a huge story and we have an hour. <laughs> So well, I mean, there's not enough time. There's so, there's you know, never. So just just you know, I I'm just interested in whatever you're interested in. I'll, Absolutely. I'll talk about anything. Well, but I think I think what we'll do is we'll start off. I want to start here, and then we'll see where it takes us. Sure. I, I was doing a little research to try to dig in a little bit more about the things I don't know about Larry, and I learned about you got into poetry. 
And I learned the reason why you got into poetry. And I think it was back in high school. Yeah. And then you got your design degree. You went on to be an illustrator. And then you got into comedy and stand up. Right. And then actor and obviously the acting piece. So many of us know you for. And then since then, I mean, you've done directing and writing in the whole nine yards. So Sagittarius. I'm a Sagittarius. You're, <laughs> okay, what does that mean? You're a Sagittarius, other than the obvious. Oh, uh, it, uh, Sagittarius are they're into everything. Ah, they're, that's they're what it is. A very curious sign, right? And I kind of feared that had to be what it was because I mean, you have taken this this long weaving path to right. you know to to see the success. Well, there's a reason for that. Yeah, oh, that's what I want to hear. Um, I, I've never wanted to do anything. In my entire life, I have never had a desire or an aim or a goal. So I just go with the wind. I just go with what shows up. Uh, I mean, oh, that 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 piques my curiosity. I mean, I have to be interested. Well, but, yes, obviously. So I just do something until I get bored and then I just leave. Or I just do something until something better or somebody better comes along. Comes along. And then I just jump across. You know, <laughs> just, I jump I'm going to go over there. Another. <laughs> I know I was uh, I, I caught an um, an interview you had done with a gentleman and you were sharing your reasons for getting into poetry way back when. And uh, if I remember the quote you gave him, it was because I wanted to get laid. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. And that's the only reason I can think of any of why anybody would go into poetry. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know about. Females, I know that guys, it's always in the back of their head. I don't know what's in the back of women's head. But right. that, just, That's a whole other show, right? That yeah, it's a whole other show. But um, uh, but I've always I always had a, an interest in in writing. And um, it's interesting where things take me, take one, but me in particular, to explain what I just told you about I never wanted to do anything sure. I did join the poetry club because I thought that, that it, it, there was only girls in it as I did some a, a little research you know who, uh, I wanted to join something you know sure. I, I mean I was like uh, in high school I, I was like an outlier I was a, a weird guy uh, I was really funny though right I wanted to get in the mix I, I was a bad joiner you know mm -hmm. I didn't get one or two friends and I thought well, poetry, and I noticed that there was a lot of girls in it. So right. I thought, oh, well, there's, uh, you know, I can join. It'll be social. It'll be good for me to join, but I'll get late. I mean, that was, that was there you have it. in my mind. And, and, and I'll put up with the poetry part of it. But <laughs> it turns out that I, I didn't get late. No. <laughs> so it, didn't, it didn't work out. I got a lot of friends. I got a lot of girl friends. friends. Right. A lot of trouble with their boyfriends. Mm -hmm. Thought I was hitting on their girl. So I, I uh, so, um, but the poetry stuck with me for some reason, uh, which has to do with my DNA. It wasn't a conscious thing. Sure. But I absorbed all this uh, stuff. I went and you know, and I was a regular. I mean, I never missed a, me a meeting. I think I met once a week. And it was just all girls. I was the only guy in the class or mm -hmm. in the club or whatever it was. Uh, and uh, so I was kind of disappointed that when I left high school, I said, that didn't work out. I got to get a better plan. <laughs> uh, but but the poetry part, years later, when I started to write, mm -hmm. um, it, it just blew my mind. It was all there. I mean, I had absorbed pretty much everything. Nice. Uh, not consciously, though. Sure. And, and that's one of my 
traits. It's one of my markers. I, I do absorb things. I, I had a, uh, my friend just wrote a book, a really great book called uh, Diary of an OCD Bookseller. Oh my goodness. It's really cool. And uh, it's blew my, my mind. But um, he asked me to write a blurb for it or a forward or something. Right. You know, I've known him for about two years. We just hang out together. And it's, I think it's going to be on the bestseller list. Frankly, okay. that's my take on it. And I'm reading it. And um, it, it turns out that we used to talk about, um, well, so he, he asked me to do the forward. So, but he wouldn't give me the book because he thought, because I was writing a book too about mm -hmm. my life. Sure. He thought, well, I absorb things. I'm, I'm an artist, you know, I'm a writer. Right. He don't want to, he didn't want to sh show me the book because he thought I would either steal it or just, you know, like Robin Williams. I mean, if he just sees your show, something is back yeah. in the day, because I was a stand-up comedian, it would be in his show and he wouldn't even know he stole it. <laughs> it would just be something that he, heard somewhere and he would boom right and I'm, i guess all artists are like that or all comedians or all writers or all whatever's i think so I, I, um go ahead he, well just uh, so i wrote he only would show me 12 pages but he uh, wanted me to write a review of the book so but he only gave me 12 pages so i said okay i'll review the 12 pages so he sent me the 12 pages i read them and then i read a forward for the book from the 12 pages now i'm reading the book i got the book it's published it's out there i'm reading the book and i i read my forward it's in in the book my forward is in the book okay based on the 12 pages i wrote a exact review of of the book in other words I do absorb things accurately because <laughs> I only had 12 pages and I'm reading the forward I wrote and it's right on now what I'm reading now. Nice. So it is nice and it's lucky because consciously I don't absorb anything. And that's mm. not, I'm not, that's the truth. That's the a fact. I have dyslexia. Mm -hmm. So if, if you tell me something, any instruction, you know, how to change it, Tire? Well, I can do that. But I mean, anything <laughs> that's complex and you want to explain it to me verbally, mm -hmm. no Forget about way. It. <laughs> uh, you know, but maybe three weeks later, I, I will get it because the subconscious has come up and now, I mean, where would I know this? Yeah, so it's kind of a, a weird thing. And I guess that's why I never had, I never wanted to do anything. I think um, never I've, met, I've met a number of folks over the course of my time on this big blue spinning globe that are more creatives, like I believe you are. And they they have the same kind of feeling about absorbing things. Like, like yeah. you know, they, Robin Williams is a great example, right? He sees yeah. something once mm -hmm. and all of a sudden it's, it's sponges, a part of him. Sponges is what we are. But yeah, but I, I think as creatives, though, you, you experience life and whatever that is, whether it's reading a book or riding a bike or changing a tire or doing stand-up comedy, it's now a part of who you are. So now it comes right. out in your creative juices. Does that make sense? No, it makes perfect sense. Uh, and, and it's just that has uh, just that lack of form, mm. you know, of, of, of focus and exactness and mm. uh, acuity. It's just kind of part of it will come out here, part of it will come out there, right. you know, and it's just one event on one day and I'll use this for that and that for this, you know, and it's and then I won't know where it came from and maybe somebody will remind me or some blah, blah, blah. Right on. Yeah. And uh, 
so I, I depend on that. Like I was an improviser. I was a great improviser. When I was a stand-up comedian, I never wrote anything. I, I didn't know how to write a joke. I didn't know how to, it, it wouldn't come out because it was a conscious act. I got to write a joke, too conscious. Mm-hmm. But I would get up on stage and just talk about my day and it would be very funny because it just, I was tapped into the, the, the subconscious, the younger, who knows what that is. But. Right. The ether. <laughs> but I don't have to think about it. I'm okay. It's just like I'm trying to, I'm, I'm learning the guitar and what, what I can make music if I don't think about it. If I don't nice. think about my hands. I don't think about my voice. If I don't think about anything, I just, just do it. You know, it's kind of like <laughs> be in the moment, right? Yeah. I'm kind of an, an, a now kind of guy. It's, and it's because of the dyslexia. I mean, I'm mm. sure, but I, I live in the moment and that's, Everybody says, hey, you know, be here now, you know, Baba Randas, LSD. But it doesn't work for me. I've always been my entire life in the now. And that, you you know, there's rent to pay next month. And that doesn't work, man. <laughs> right. It does not work. So that's bullshit. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, both. That, that's all I'm saying. I'm not throwing one out. Right, it's right. Both. It's, you know, and I was only in one. So consequently, I would never make any... Plans when I was in the uh, the committee, which was my salad days, I w- I thought I would be there forever, and I just went into work every day and I improvised. Um, you know, at night I never studied. We rehearsed, but we never rehearsed what we were going to improvise. You can't do that. It's you know what, what right. situations are going to. So I always lived in the moment and learned that it's a trap. I mean, it's a nice philosophy. If you're a Zen Buddhist, it works great. It works great. <laughs> but, you know, unless you're on top of a mountain. <laughs> you know, Not too many of us are the, living there anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but yeah, that, that's kind of, I've always been in the now and try to get out of the now. Live in the now, but think about the future. There we go. Oh, yeah, yeah. Man. Just keep in mind that <laughs> there's a tomorrow and you're going to wake up. Right. Yeah. yeah. Keep in mind the rent that's coming out, right? The rent. That, that's, that's my driving force. I didn't so, have to worry about, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. Well, I, I know there was a period of time when you didn't have to worry about rent. You were, uh, wasn't there a, a year or two that you lived out of your car for a while? Yeah, I was homeless. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Then you have, all you have when you're homeless is now. It's it's not even a concept of tomorrow. There is no rent. There's, you. all you have is time, man. <laughs> How, you know, there's only two things. I, I wrote a book about it, but uh, uh, there was uh, all you have is, um, I think it's, oh, get this. here's your, the rules. If you're ever going to be homeless or want to be homeless or you are homeless, I boiled it down to just two things. Get through today and find a safe place to sleep tonight and you're home free, completely home free. That's my advice. And that's how I lived for a year. It was a year, one year. Uh, I lived in my car. And you had my batteries stolen, had my guitar stolen. Uh, you have to, and when you, when, when you, the, the most important thing when you're homeless, if you're living in your car anyway, is your guitar and your, your battery. Those are the two things. You don't, you don't even care about food. You can play your guitar to pass time. Right. Food is very trans, transitory. <laughs> you eat it, it's gone. <laughs> At least I have the guitar. It's always there. And your battery. And the reason for your battery is not that you have to go anywhere. All you have to go to is the other side of the street on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And if they take your battery, you're fucked. <laughs> How do I get my car across the street now? You got to get your friends to push the car across <laughs> the street. 
I mean, it's really weird. And, and, and it's illegal to sleep in your car overnight if it doesn't have a bathroom. That's the rule, by the way. And that's how they judge it. Stop it. No. If they, because if, uh, I was found by the police sleeping in my car in various places, which I thought was cool. You know, okay, it's Wednesday. It's Wednesday. I'm cool for tomorrow. It's so right. going to be okay. And then there's the uh, the wrapping on the window. Hey, yeah. Uh, with a nightstick, generally. Uh, or, or you wake up to the rain and it's really not. It's a drunk pissing on your back. You know, that's not but, a good. Uh, that's not a good wake up call. Uh, little details that tell you I was homeless. So uh, yeah. So when you're you're uh, the yeah the battery and the and the food. I don't know. I just go on. That, that's okay. Anyway, that's, so uh, what I, I know you were having a very successful career. I mean, you were opening up for folks like Woody Allen and uh, yeah. even, yeah. even for uh, some mainstream Miles rock Davis. bands in arena. Uh, events. Oh, Miles Davis, the Love and Spoonful, the blues project, um, yeah. all the rock bands of, of the sixties I was opening for. Which, uh, which for uh, folks like myself nowadays, you know, usually it's another band opening for a band, not a, comedian doing stand-up that was for a while but but then things started to change in the late 60s mm-hmm. uh, late 60s i uh, mid mid to late 60s where they 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 wanted comedy was starting to come up mm. coffee houses okay because uh, the open mic nights and all of a sudden there was just folk singers and stand-up comedians that was it and i was living in greenwich village and every second store was a, a coffee house with an open mic night and you just go from open mic nights to open mic nights you know you just do your three to five minutes you know monday tuesday wednesday and thursday and sunday and you just you, know, you had about six coffee houses that you just keep on going around you do the early show later 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 show and then you come back to the first one and do the late show so two shows in one coffee house for five minutes, and and it was really cool. I never wrote anything. They're very kind. I that was the the best times was in the committee improvising because I didn't have to memorize anything. You just mm-hmm. say that and and open mic nights because you only have three to five minutes to, to fill. So you there's no way to bomb because everybody in the coffee house is just waiting there for their friend to get up so they can applaud. You know, you have right. to bring five <laughs> friends with you. So. They it was it was okay to just wait three minutes for this unfunny comedian to get off the stage. No booing. They would just sit there quietly. So it was very nice, very kind, very you know, uh, I don't know, comedy. You know, it's just right. very funny. So uh, there was no 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 booing or hissing, and and you could just do and I could just talk about anything I wanted for five minutes. And it, I did have a photographic memory for laughs. Okay, I guess all comedians do have that. I would just get up and I would talk for five minutes. If I had one laugh, then the next coffee house, I would just know the setup and punchline to that one laugh. And You'd I go right forget. to that one and then add more stuff, yeah? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I did, and it wasn't, again, it, it wasn't um, any energy on my part. I would just forget, not have available, no access to things that weren't funny the next time. I would just... I would say, oh, you know, I was talking about fire engines yesterday, and I remember I got a laugh. I'll talk about fire engines tonight. And I would just get up there, and the only thing I would remember was the funny stuff. Well, that's a good skill to have. Well, yeah, but it had nothing to do with me. I mean, I wasn't trying to 
sift or, you know, weed out. It just, so uh, consequently, since I was never writing, but my hunks, as they call them, mm -hmm. my, my hunks of comedy uh, uh, gathered like a snowball really, really fast. Cause mm -hmm. it was, from one coffee house to another, I'd be dropping off, remembering uh, the jokes. So in one night I could get like maybe a three minute piece just from different coffee house laughs from different places. So, so here's the, here, here's the real question for me. Uh, and I know both sides of this. When, when folks are coming up, how long does it take them to know they're funny? When a guy come, when you come off the stage and there's a man standing there saying, "Hey, you got an agent?" <laughs> that's when you know you're funny, right? That's when you know you. That's what happened with me. That's what happened with all of us. Everybody in Greenwich Village, and I'm talking about Bob Dylan and Peter Paul and Mary and Cosby, and just the entire '60s was filled with the people in Greenwich Village, right. on open mic nights that are now huge stars. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, they're all over the. But there, every every, but nobody was known. I mean, it was, okay. So um, the point was, nobody wanted to be famous then. That was mm. too far away. You're in Greenwich Village. You're working open mic nights, right? But what you wanted was representation. Mm. You wanted somebody. Hey, you got a manager, and if you got a manager, you were a king of the village for like that evening or whatever. You right. know, you would be talked about. Hey, man, you know, Hankin just got a manager, man. <laughs> you know, you walk in, well, I'm through with open mic nights. I think I'll, you know, try auditioning for a nightclub or something. <laughs> no, all of a sudden you were king, king of the hill, you know, and, you, and it didn't matter what your manager was. You could be a washed out old guy, a young and coming new guy, a real manager, a fake one. It didn't matter. I had representation. I was cool. You were the I, next step I'm up real, in the run. I was, I was funny. Yeah. Nice. So, so you you get through Greenwich Village, you get representation. I, I mean, across your career, you've covered a a, a lot of projects. Yeah. What shifts you from doing stand up to acting? It seems like night and day. To wow. Me. Well, that's a good question. Uh, okay, so the guy who I came off the stage with, who said, "Hey, you got a manager," mm -hmm. uh, happened to be a Woody Allen's manager. Okay. No, I didn't know that. He was just a guy. It didn't. If somebody said to me, and which is what he did, he actually said, as I came off the stage, he says, "You got a manager?" I went, "No." He says, "How would you like one?" Oh, or do you want one? Do you want one? I said, "Oh, yeah, yeah," because everybody. Right. Uh, so he said, "Well, how about me?" I said, "Sure." <laughs> now, I didn't know who he was. I, you know, but he wanted to be my manager. I said, "Sure." He said, "Okay." I said, "What do I do now?" He said, "Just keep doing what you're doing. I'll just check in every once in a while." Goodbye. And he, and he left and I didn't know his name. He didn't give me a card, nothing. He just said, I'm, oh, I said, he probably told me his name, but it didn't register. Sure. It was Jack, uh, who was Woody's manager. And he's a famous manager. He's like, in managing business, he is very famous. I didn't, yeah. I don't know. But probably back then he wasn't famous at all. Sure. You know, because Woody was just working across the street. He was just, uh, uh, working in a very small nightclub in Greenwich Village. Okay. Jim Paul Isler's show, show play, upstairs at the downstairs. That's where he was. So I knew of him, but, you know, he was just another stand-up comedian. Uh, so what, what happened was, how did I make the transition? Jack finally came in one day and he said, okay. He would come in, he would stand in the back, and he would. I would come off the stage and say, hey, that was a good set. 
you know, keep keep up the good work. You know, you're really fun. Mm-hmm. And then one day he said, okay, I, I think you're ready. I booked you uh, in a nightclub. Wow, man, I'm out of the village. This was incredible. So that was the first step. It was at number one Fifth Avenue, which was in the village. So I didn't even have to, you know, go, <laughs> in. go out of town. Right, I lived yeah. in the village. I was doing the coffee houses in the village. And this was right on the edge of the village, you know, three blocks away. Number one Fifth Avenue, a Tony Bistro, a boat. And um, I was opening for a, a chanteuse, you know, a nightclub singer, you know, with the gloved hands all the way up yeah. to the elbows and the gown and the, you know, arrangements. And yes. I would come out and do, you know, Greenwich Village, some pot stuff. And it wasn't going over. You know, I was like, oh, you got to find your audience. <laughs> ah, interesting. You know, because in the village, anything went, you know. But right. now this is, you know. So the, the audience is very quiet. But I, I made it through. And the interesting thing was this guy who was my manager, Jack Rollins. But I still didn't know it was Woody's manager. I, I, he didn't tell me. I had no cause to ask. Who else are you managing? Uh, but um, he he kept he he booked me in other nightclubs, and I started to un- realize you have to find your audience. That sometimes I was booed off the stage, and I'm talking about a guy coming across the dance floor, you know, a nightclub, you know, the stage isn't really that high. <laughs> Guys coming across the uh, a guy coming across the stage with an upside down beer bottle in his hand, saying, "Get the fuck off the stage and bring on the Kingston Trio." <laughs> Whoa! Your you know, time is I'm done. Uh, you know, nobody told me about this. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, the world is like an open mic night. You know, that's that's the shock. I, I you know, I, so I, I got off the stage immediately, uh, and I, I sat at the bar because I'm not going to fight this guy. He was a starker, as they say. So um, I started to get a lot of that. Now, when I was opening for the bands and stuff, that was okay. And I was opening for Miles Davis. That was great. And I was opening for Woody Allen. And that was okay. It was a little not that, but, you know, they still laughed because Woody was funny. So this guy's funny. Woody's too. a different type of humor. You know, it really is. Different type, but, st- but, but, but still they were funny. Maybe the laugh was left. Well, no, I opened for him. So yeah. I don't know, but they were kind. But I knew that something was up. Again, this is not my audience. And then Kingston Trio, that was the beer bottle guy when he said, get the fuck. And he said, get the fuck off the stage. I mean, he wasn't kidding around. Uh, I got off the stage and I called my agent and I said, Jack. And I said, look, man, I can't do this, you know, because what I had discovered was and where, where my mind really was at as I was working on comedy, was was the uh, critical thinking comedians, you know, Lenny Bruce, George Carlin, Richie Pryor, who were just, Lenny was kind of finished, but he would come, well, Lenny was finished, but Carlin and Pryor were just coming up. They weren't famous, but I knew they were funny. They were in the village and I was going to see them. Even Robin Williams was there back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. But nobody was famous. But I, So I started to get into grit, critical thinking. And that's when the explosion of, hey, get the hell off the stage. Uh, and that happened a lot. I mean, I would do arena shows with the Love and Spoonful, and even college students would say, no, we don't want to hear that. I was talking about God. Yeah. You know, critical thinking, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, you know, whatever. whatever. Important important stuff that I would be foolish about. Right. I wouldn't treat them importantly. 
<laughs> that's, I guess, what got him mad. But that was being thrown off the stage a lot. And then I find the cops were pulling me off the stage. And I was getting the Lenny Bruce treatment, literally. The phalanx of, you know, 20 cops coming on the stage. 20 cops to take you. one guy who's just being funny on the stage. All right, we have to take you off the stage. But that's what was going on. So I called Jack and I said, I can't do this, man. I'm a middle-class Jewish kid. And I'm not even doing drugs yet. <laughs> I haven't started doing drugs yet. So I thought, well, they're pulling me off the stage because they think I'm doing drugs. I'm not doing drugs. So I couldn't, I couldn't understand why they were pulling me off. I didn't, mm. I didn't make the connection. No, it's what you're talking about, idiot. But they were just, and I said, I can't do this anymore, man. It's not fun for me. I was doing it for fun. I wasn't even writing, you know. So he said, why don't you join Second City? So, which I did. I auditioned for Second City. They were in New York, and I happened to be in New York. And I auditioned, I auditioned with Robin Williams. He wasn't Robin Williams yet, but he had the the, the bib overalls and the rainbow <laughs> suspenders. So you're Robin Williams. So we and he went to one company. I went down to St. Louis. We were there. We were held over. We were pretty cool. It was an improv group. Second yep. City. And then uh, Paul Sills came down and said, "Hey, you two. Uh, it was me and uh, Jack Burns." said, come on up to Chicago. We want you in the show. So we went up to, so that was kind of starting me off towards acting. Uh, okay. You know? So stand up. Now I'm on a stage, but I'm saying my own words. And then I went to school up there uh, in Chicago, Second City School, improv school. Okay. With, with Viola Spolin and Paul Sills, you know, the, the uh, Lee Strasbergs of improv. I mean, you know. I was so we went to school with all these famous people, Alan Arkin, and uh, just I can't remember, but you, you'll know them if I. Right. And anyway, so I was there for about six months. I, I finally made the main stage. I was on the main stage. I was in the show, and but they had too many people. It was nine people, and that's too many. You can't improvise with too many. Nobody's getting enough time to sharpen mm-hmm. their chops. Yeah. So you need five, five, five. Four guys and a girl. For some strange reason, I don't know why that worked out. But everybody was doing four guys and a girl. That's it. Uh, sometimes they tried, you know, three guys and three girls, or four guys and two girls, and it somehow it didn't work. But I, I, I think that that was a farce. It, they just wouldn't give it a chance. Right. It is. Anyway, five of us broke off from Second City and went to San Francisco to open up a show, uh, an improv called The Committee. And we rivaled Second City. We, and that was what our purpose was. Let's go to San Francisco because there's too many people here and we're not getting enough time on the stage. And I had been let go because there was nine people and we were, you know, last hired first. Time. And so we went to San Francisco and that opened up Hollywood. See, there mm-hmm. we were in San Francisco. And in those days, in the early 60s, it was only $35 round trip to fly to San Francisco and back to Hollywood. So all the green light people who can hire and fire people, they were flying up. They were, Chicago is too far to fly, but we were as famous as Chicago, second city. Right. So he said, hey, well, let's go up there just to see the show, you know, and look at San Francisco, see the Golden Gate Bridge. And what they would do is they come up and when they get back, they'd say, hey, I saw this person in the show, get them down here for this sitcom. So all of us were flying down now to do sitcoms for a week or a day, mm. come back. And then the money was so good that they would go down and never come and back. And never come back. 
<laughs> he went so to the, LA and never came back. <laughs> yeah. So the attrition was what finally got me down there. I would go down once or twice and come back, but I just wanted to improvise. I didn't like the people down there or Hollywood down here. That's where I am. Yeah. I, I didn't like the vibe. It wasn't, it wasn't carefree. Mm. It, it was suits, suits and CEOs and green lights. And you can't do that. And why are you doing? I just couldn't. It, so it's I a different energy. Yeah. But finally the committee closed, you know, everybody, because of attrition, everybody who was a oh, good, the original company all left. And I just refused to go. So the second company was just from actors in San Francisco Mm-hmm. who had no experience acting or any or improvising or anything. So we would have to put them through school. I was teaching for a while, uh, but it just wasn't working out. The, 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 the quality, the attack, we were, you know, we, we, we called ourselves Dobermans. That's what we were. Okay. And the, the director would come in and say, with the, the, the examiner or the Chronicle, the paper, papers, yeah. or, the, or the LA Times or the New York Times, and say, okay, let's get Nixon or let's get Johnson or let's get this or let's get these guys. And he would, he would just, what we would do is read interesting news items from the paper. It doesn't matter what page, back or the, or the funny papers. And we say, well, we can do that tonight or let's talk about this or let's work on some characters or, or we discuss the news of the day, which was great because it fed my critical thinking, all our critical thinking. Right. And uh, it gave it, it gave me and the rest of the company great reading habits and and satire habits. So finally, when it closed, uh, I had to go down to L.A. because you're now listening to-, to the Dark Horse Entrepreneur Podcast. I couldn't go back. I had to go forward. Right. There was money down there. They knew me. I had done a couple of shows. So that's how I got into acting. There's a long way around answering your question. No, no, that was that was a I great was story. Back. Yeah, well, oh. we know it wasn't a direct route, but that's that's I mean, <laughs> yeah. that, that's really cool. Nothing though. is with me. Uh, just, well, yeah, I don't think it is with any of us, is it? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess really. Oh my goodness! So here's one I wanted to dig into. So I was I was watching an interview of you. You were out um, at some event, and you were pitching um, a, a movie idea, or maybe it was a series of movies. But w- the the focus of it was this character of yours that you had created you actually spent 10 years in development of emmett emmett what t- t- tell me a little bit more about emmett and and 10 years what's up with that oh it's longer than that oh uh, I, i'll give you an exact thing because uh i made a drawing and uh i put a date on it okay and i left it when i left home uh where you know i would go home for vacations and stuff so i left it my sister picked it up saved it and let about two or three, four years ago, sent me it. She said, hey, I found this, you know. And there was a date on it, 1976. Woo. It was Emmett. And it was an old guy. And the story, I can tell you the, the story of how I got to Emmett. And it was very premeditated. It was the, the most premeditated. And it, and it turns out that, I, like I told you, I've never wanted to do anything. I never had any dreams about being. But my DNA did and does mm. and had. And I never was aware of it, but I am here because of something Emmett. Um, what happened was I was watching television and I was watching this sitcom where <clears throat> the mom was a famous actress, movie actress. You know, something like Lucille Ball. Okay. You know? But she was a movie actress, she became and then she became queen of 
TV. Well, I was watching this and, and I found another woman who was a sitcom mom, but I remember her for the movies when I was growing up, black and white movies. And, I said, oh. and then I saw another one and another one. And then I, I came to the conclusion, I said to myself, oh my God, when actresses become over 35, maybe 40, this is in the early 60s, when they get 35 to 40, they, they can't become movie actresses anymore. They're too old. Okay. So they become sitcom moms. And I thought, wow, that's so sad about women. And it was really true. And it was a thing down in, in Hollywood. I mean, actresses, movie actors were complaining about this. That mm. I can't get a job after I'm 40. What the hell is going on? What's wrong with you writers? So, you know, no good part. So I said, what about men? So I started to look at sitcoms about the fathers. And I said, oh, my God, when male actors, movie actors become 45 to 55, they become sitcom dads. Mm -hmm. And I started clocking that. And it was true. Oh, my God. So now I'm an actor. I'm down in Hollywood. And I see my future. And I couldn't stand it. I mean, I just, no, I'm not going to be a sitcom dad. I No, or a sitcom mom. I mean, neither. <laughs> Uh, it's not, it's, so I, that's not what I wanted to do. Okay. Remember that, pe that little drawing, 1976. Okay. So I said, I'm going to design a character. I, I had forgotten about that drawing in 1976. Right. This is, this is, um, well, 1976, this was in the early 60s. This was in the late 60s that I, that this thought came about the dad. Da I don't want to be a, da a dad. Right. And I thought, well, I have to design a character that I can play as an older movie actor. Right. When I become 55 and my hair is gray, I will have a character like Chaplin. But Chaplin made a character when he was 18 and he made him uh, a, a, a bureaucrat. That his costume was a bureaucrat. He wasn't, he wasn't a homeless guy. He wasn't, he wasn't raggedy. Right. Chaplin's character, his little tramp, always tried to be neat. It was just his clothes wasn't his. Right. That was made him homeless. But he wasn't dirty or he mm. was a bureaucrat. Okay. But, and he was 18. But his bureaucrat was 25 to 35. In other words, he played older. His yeah. character was older. So I took that formula and I said, well, I'm, past, I'm 35 now. And I only have 10 more years or 15 more years before I turn into a sitcom dad. Mm -hmm. So I got to go up just like Chaplin. So I'll make him 55 to 60 gray hair. My, and, and I called him Emmett. Uh, for Emmett, you know, from the circus, you know, uh, uh, Emmett Kelly, you know, Emmett. Yeah, Emmett and yeah. So I named him Emmett and I worked on him just on my own little movies, which I used uh, the money from my acting. I would pour into making film shorts about Emmett. I have hundreds of them, uh, film shorts, which are going to go on Patreon soon, all of them. Uh, so uh, that's how Emmett was invented. And then uh, in 1976, as I was approaching the age where my hair was starting to get, what do you call it, salt and pepper? Right. Think, oh, well, here comes Emmett. You know, he's going to be, he's, it's going to work. It's and they made a, uh, a, a test film in 19... Wow, 1980, I think it was 1970 or 80, called Sally's Diner and it got an Academy Award nomination. 
And basically, my hair was salt and pepper. So I wasn't old enough, but I was testing out the old guy, Emmett, that I was going to play when I became 55 and 60 was going to be homeless. That, that I had made up in my mind mm-hmm. uh, because it would be easy because Chaplin was homeless. I mean, right. that was the reason. Chaplin was homeless. I thought, okay, I'll do a modern version. Uh, and uh, then my sister sent me this picture that I had drawn and now I was, uh, I don't know, 35, 40 or something like that. And I was blown away by the accuracy of where my head over the years had taken Emmett to be, you know, 60 years old with white hair. And it was pretty accurate. It was a cartoon of me, older, uh, uh, with, a, with a beard and white hair and, and a mustache and a beard. And I was blown away by, oh, my God, here's a, a guy, me, who was living in the now and in 1976, I don't know how young I was, but, you know, I was pretty young. I had predicted where I was going to be in 19, uh, in, in 2020. It's a drawing of me now. That's that, uh, that's that creative absorption we were talking about earlier, right? Yeah. You didn't me, even know what was happening. Yeah. I, it just blew me away. But I said, wow, man, that's pressing, you know? Okay. And so that's where it, it came from. It was planning for my not being, it was an anti. I was planning on not being a sitcom dad, is where Emmett came from. It wasn't, I wanted to be a homeless funny guy. It was, I'm not going to be a doddering, you know, sitcom dad. dad. <laughs> so that, that's how I did And And now uh, it's coming to fruition, you know. Uh, it, uh, um, a lot of my movies now, I play homeless old guys. <laughs> they request it. I say, well, will you audition? I say, what's the part? Well, you're a colonel in the Air Force. I don't do a colonels in the Air Force. No, you got any homeless people. Can you <laughs> right. write a homeless part? Because uh, I just want to, because I want to write my own movies. Right. Uh, which I'm writing now. I, I'm, I'm writing now movies for Emmy. I have one already finished, but it's a, it's almost a tentpole movie. It's a road movie. He, he steals a motorcycle and he wants to be a hero. He wants to be a biker. He wants to be an outlaw. <laughs> and you've had experience being a biker from your past, right? Well, I, I owned uh, I owned a uh, the the replica of oh, who's that guy? Um, uh, the, uh, there was a, a movie about uh, uh, Stephen Queen. Okay, Stephen Queen was into motorcycles, and he was in a, a movie, an escape, uh, uh, a Second World War escape movie. Stop, and he was in a Stalag, not Stalag Seventeen, but he was in a he was in an escape prison camp army movie okay where he escaped by jumping over a fence on a motorcycle Mm. in the movie and that motorcycle which was a triumph 650 um was a a special motorcycle that they got from triumph that they wanted specifically for the movie so it was it was a uniquely designed it wasn't it wasn't an amazing thing it was just different designs specifically for the movie okay and, and Steve McQueen wrote it in the movie, and he, that's how he escaped. He stole it from one of the Germans, and he jumped out, and he, he ran away. Okay. After the movie, Steve McQueen wanted that motorcycle. The Great was, Escape. That's the name of the movie. Great Escape. Exactly. And so he got Triumph to build him his own. Oh, nice. Replica of that. Okay. Or maybe it was the real one. I, I don't know, but he had it after the movie and he rode around on that motorcycle and people saw it and they asked, they made a request to Trump to put that out on the market. Mm-hmm. So they built five because they didn't want to get into it, really. So they built five and they sold five. 
I go into a motorcycle shop because one day I say, I got enough money. I want to buy a motorcycle. So I go into a used motorcycle shop and I go, I got $500. What do you got? So he brings me over to a, a, a mud caked motorcycle. It was filthy. I think he just got it the other that that day or something. Okay. <laughs> he hadn't cleaned it up. So I, I saw it and I figured, wow, this is going to be cheap. I said, well, how, how much is this motorcycle? He said, how much you got? And so stupidly, I said five hundred dollars. Five hundred dollars, and I I went for it because I I, I just liked it, man. So I gave him the five hundred dollars, and it turned out it was the Steve McQueen copy. Nice. Yeah, it was really, and I so I cleaned it up. And I wrote it for about a year. And then one day, stupidly, man, just stupidly, I was at a bachelor party for a friend and I got shit-faced drunk. Is okay. And I wrote it and a guy pulled in front of me and I, uh. him. I had 40 miles, 40 to 40 to 50 miles an hour, right into the side, right into his front tire, boom, like that, boom. And I went flying. It was described to me. <laughs> I went flying the, the girl in the car there was a male driver and his girlfriend but she had told me she said they saw me fly over the hood and land you know flat boom, uh -huh. pavement. I just woke up I don't remember that at all that wow. was and I woke up and I hear this voice over me a male voice over me saying please don't die please don't die please right. don't die i mean you don't want to you don't want to wake up to that no if you're laying on the road you know and you see the road just straight ahead you know and you and i was laying flat and i couldn't move a finger oh i was paralyzed from the neck damn and uh yeah and my first thought was when i realized that because i tried to get up you know and I couldn't move anything. And I'm just laying there. And my first thought was, okay, I can put a pencil in my mouth and I can tap things out to write. Like, <laughs> You're problem solving. <laughs> I thought, wow, man. You know, my will to survive is right there, man. <laughs> I mean, I blew my mind laying on the pavement. That blew my mind. Where did that thought come from? I can't move. And then finally, it was I was numb and I could feel the numbness wearing away and I could move. And I wasn't paralyzed. I was numb and I couldn't move. And, and then uh, a cop, a female cop, bent down towards me and she said, she whispered it. It was really cool. She was really cool. She said, um, you can't say that I'm telling you, I'll deny it, but you are not it. This is the driver's, but you can't use my testimony. I'm not allowed to tell you. And that was kind of cool. And that I is kind of cool. Yeah. And uh, so, but I, 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 I got up and I was standing in about, you know, two, three minutes. I was standing and I, and I wasn't hurt at all. I mean, there was nothing. I, I think I'm maybe a little sore on my chest, but really, yeah. nothing was, All factors considered, you came up pretty but much. They were, the, uh, the ambulance had come. I mean, she sent for an ambulance. Right. And they, they came and they said, we have to take you to a hospital. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, because the motorcycle was screwed up. I Post. mean, it effed me. Anyway, <laughs> it was just really, I mean, I really hit it. So, uh the guy whose fault it was and me, we dragged it to the side and just left it. There. Mm. Uh, I don't know how I got it back. I think it was there the next day. They took me to the hospital or maybe somebody, I don't know. I, I don't know the events. All I know is I went to the hospital and they said, there's nothing wrong with you. You're okay. And I just wanted to go home. 
Mm-hmm. And, I, uh, and the, the guy was begging me. He, he, he was there. He went, and I remember he just came, look, he, I don't have any money. I don't have any money. I, mean, I don't even have any insurance here. So I just wanted to shut him up. I said, I'm not going to sue you. Just get out of here. I'm just going home. Right. I, I, I was, um, I think I was in shock is, is what I was. Yeah. You know, when I finally got to my senses the next day, everybody was saying, why the fuck didn't you sue him, man? Are you <laughs> crazy? You know, I, thought, I, I don't know. I, I just wanted to go home, you know? Yeah. Uh, and there was, I had no no help. I mean, I was alone, and he was this guy and his girlfriend, and he's telling the doctors, "Well, you know, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault." You know? So, but that so anyway, yeah, that's my adventure. And I didn't never, I haven't gotten on a motorcycle. <laughs> I can't imagine why. <laughs> One fucking drunk night. That's all it takes, man. Over. So I, I'm a I'm a quick learner. I'm a quick study. That's a good thing. <laughs> you don't have to tell me twice. <laughs> I haven't been on a motorcycle since then. I was someone who was, I don't know, 70. I can't imagine. Uh, all right. Yeah, I appreciate you hanging out, man. I want to be mindful of your time. But I know you've got some projects going on. You you mentioned you know your movies are going to be up on Patreon. Yeah. And um, I know you do some awesome painting. You were showing to me, showing oh, yeah. to me right are, behind you there. Those are pretty cool. I so, just saw that one that today. I just saw. Nice. Yeah, they're on the website, uh, you know, therealarryhankin.com. RealLarryHankin.com. I want to make sure we get these links in the show notes so people can just click right yeah, through. And, uh, just a word to everybody out there. Don't go to LarryHankin.com because I don't own LarryHankin.com. Some guy stole it from me and he's holding it for ransom and I'm not going to pay it. Mm. So I got the real Larry Hankin. I mean, if you go there, it's just dead. It's not a, there's nothing. He's hoping you'll buy it from him, right? You know, it's the funny story with that is I remember, I'm old enough to remember, remember 20th Century Fox? Yeah. Um, so when the new millennium was coming, somebody was smart enough to go out and buy the URL 21st Century Fox. Oh, yeah. That's knowing funny. that they were going to want to change their name in the new millennium. And apparently he made off with a, a few thousand, actually, it was tens of thousands of dollars as oh, a result of that forethinking. Well, that's, uh, yeah. And I should have thought of that. But I didn't, I got the, I got the website when I wasn't known at all. Yeah. No, that's fine. Yeah. So it never occurred to me. All right, so we'll, we'll make sure we'll get the real LarryHankin.com down in the show notes so people can come check out your paintings. And then uh, do, do you have links in your website that take them to the the things you're doing in Patreon? Uh, not yet because the, the Patreon thing hasn't launched. It's going to launch ne- next month. But okay. if you go to the real LarryHankin.com, there's links to everything on there. And most of what's going to be on Patreon is going to be on the real Larry Okay. My t-shirts, my, there's a Mr. Heckles (laughs) t-shirt. But there's other, all my paintings are on t-shirts. In other words, these two paintings are on a t-shirt. Oh, nice. Not at the same time. But I have 40 paintings, so there's like 40 t-shirts. Sweet. I'm going to have to check those. Uh, I really like that one that you said you just sold today. That one's pretty cool. Yeah, it's called uh, Hood in the Hood in the Hood. That's the name. (laughs) And once you see it, it makes perfect sense. (laughs) (laughs) Took me a while to think of it, but I like it. And um, I don't know what I I don't know what the name of that one is. Just shut up. I I can use that one every once in a while. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I, I have to, I, I want to close with one last question for you. So across your varied history mm-hmm. with some of the obvious superstars you've been able to rub elbows with, yeah. 
what's the coolest story that just kind of pops to mind right now? The cruelest or the coolest? Coolest. The coolest. The coolest. Okay. The coolest. The coolest uh, is that, that's kind of simple because the coolest two people who would have a story about them that I could tell you mm-hmm. is Don Siegel, who directed me in and directed the uh, Escape from Alcatraz. Okay. Uh, he, uh, and John Houston, who directed me, uh, who directed Annie. But John, John Houston, do you want to hear the story? Is that, that what you're asking? Yeah, me? yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, well, okay, this is the coolest story that ever happened. And I've had some cool. Um, so I auditioned, which is a whole little trip about um, Annie. I'm, I'm auditioning for the dog catcher. I was a dog catcher. And by the way, the, the, the coolest moment of my life was years later after I had done Annie, I went to a, and the movie had come out and gone out and it was, so years later, everybody forgot about it. So I, I think it was about two years later. Mm-hmm. And I go to a friend's house and they have a little girl, a little girl who's five years old. Now, I just knew the mom. Her, her. So I come into the house and I go, oh, how you doing, Gloria? You know, how you doing? Haven't seen you in a long time. Hi, Ed. How are you? And this little five-year-old girl comes running and she says, it's the dog catcher. It's the dog catcher. <laughs> oh, that and, is awesome. And I said, oh, my God, she's seen the movie. She says, seen the movie. Her mom says, seen the movie. She's got the book. And I and she, the little girl goes and runs and gets the little the, the uh, Annie movie book for little girls, you know, know, and she opens up the page and there's a picture of me as the dog catcher. And in other words, they, they taken stills from the movie. Okay. And wrote a, 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 the story of the movie and made it into a a bedtime story book for for children. And there she had a picture of me and she shows me, she says, yeah, yeah." I said, wow, wow. Thank you. But no, I'm Larry. It's just, no, you're the dog you're catcher. The dog catcher. You're the dog catcher. <laughs> that moment, uh, I'll never forget. That's oh. the greatest gift an actor can have. Absolutely. A little girl come. You're the dog. But John Houston, that story is, um, he was for me. Uh, when I auditioned, I auditioned, all the audition is, is, is he sits in a chair watching his uh TV uh, movies, uh, video, uh, what do you call it? The monitor? TV Village. Okay. TV Village is called, where the director sits and watches the camera. Okay. And he's watching his rushes. And then, and you're brought in by the casting director, and he just, you know, he'll just switch focus. He'll just turn in his director's chair and say, oh, hi, Larry. And he knows your name. Hi, Larry, you know. Okay, yeah, you know, it's a dog catcher. You know, you have to cut your hair off because I had long hair. It was, you know, uh, I was a hippie. <laughs> you cut your hair off. He's a very nice man. And as I'm coming in, you know, and he turns to me, she's steering me. She gets behind me, but puts her hand on my shoulders and she's steering me right in front of him directly, perfectly. And he goes, without like, not even, I'm not even there. He's just talking to her. He said, what are you doing? He's like, bother you. What are you doing? What are you doing? And she said, oh, I'm placing the actor in front of you so you can see him. He says, please don't touch my actor. <laughs> and I'm concerned. And I thought, wow, man, guy's sticking up for me. I mean, I'm nobody. And so she backs off, you know, it's like her hands come off like my shoulders were like hot. <laughs> wow. And then he goes, okay, you know, Larry, you know, you have to cut your hair. Yeah. You know, you're just a dog catcher. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. And, uh, oh, so she goes behind me and I had long hair. That's why he's saying you have to get your hair cut. She goes behind me as he says, you know, you have to get a, hair, a haircut. She goes behind me. She takes my hair 
It was like really long, and she pulls it up like this. And he goes, now what you? Now what are you doing? He says her name. Now what are you doing? And she says, well, I'm pulling his hair up so you can see him uh, without, uh, because he has to get a haircut, and I want you to see him, you know, to help you visualize him. And he interrupts, and he says, I am a director. I have an imagination. Please don't touch my actors. And I'm thinking, this guy is amazing, man. I've never been stuck up for, you know, right. protected this way. Nobody's ever great. And, he, and then she drops it. And she's just, she doesn't know what to do. She's just standing next to me. And he goes, do you understand that? Do you have to cut your hair off? I go, yeah, yeah. Are you willing to do that? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I just wanted to work for this guy. I don't right? know. <laughs> and he goes, okay, thank you very much, Larry. That's all I needed to know. Thank you. And he turns back and he's watching his TV. And she's about to touch me, you know, like, come this way. Whoa, whoa, no. I'll follow <laughs> you out and go out. Okay, that's a setup. Okay. I get to the movie. Now I'm hired. I get the job. I go to the, uh, now there's a rule and it, uh, that I've learned. It's just me. You learn these little things. Mm-hmm. Okay. When you show up, there's an AD, an assistant director. And his job is generally a young kid. It's about like anywhere from 18 to 27. And there's usually one or two of them. Then they just, and what they do is they sign you in and they show you to your dressing room. So when you show up, find the AD, find an AD. It doesn't matter. They have to see you first. Where's the AD? The AD is over here. Okay. Hey, I'm Larry. I'm the dog catcher. And he goes, okay, let me show you to your dressing room. And I say, stop. And this is what I learned. I say, um, is my, is my costume in the dressing room? And they know, they know, they will know. So in this instance, he said, no, it's not. Now, I know, I've learned that if your costume is in your dressing room, it's a fait accompli. That's what you got to wear. No no talk. That's it. But if your costume isn't in the dressing room, it hasn't been prepared yet. It's in the costume department and you can have a say about what to wear. Nice. Yeah. So I, he said, no, it's not in there. I said, okay, then I don't want to go to the dressing room. Show me where the costume department. So he says, it's over there. He takes me to the costume department. I walk in. There's a person who's in charge. And I say, hey, I'm Larry. I'm the dog catcher. Where is my costume? Where is my costume? She says, oh, it's on the rack over there. We haven't sorted it out yet. I say, great. Can I go over and look at it and maybe choose something? Oh, yeah, sure. So I go over there and I'm going through this. It's a rack. And it just says different things a dog catcher would wear in 1932. Okay. I'm going in. I'm going in. All of a sudden, the voice behind me says, what are you doing? I said, oh, and it's a guy. Obviously, a costume guy, you know, assistant, something like that. Oh, I'm, I'm going through... Uh, I'm, I'm the dog catcher. I'm going to choose. I, I asked. I have permission to be here. I have your costume. Okay. Yeah. All right. What is it? And he takes and he gives me this square cardboard. It looks like square cardboard. It's tan. It's obviously cloth, but it's stiff and it's square. And what it is, it's the a mechanics, uh, uh, you know what they wear in a garage is those blue. Th- over- yeah. Yeah. Like those overalls. Only it's tan because it's a dog catcher, sure. but it's coveralls. It's a coverall suit, but he has cleaned it, washed it, and starched it, folded and pressed it into a square that doesn't bend. <laughs> I mean, you have put a ton of starch in it. So I go, and he, he says, this is your costume, and he hands me the square. And I give it back to him. I say, I can't wear that. And he goes, why not? And I say, because it's starched, man. I'm a dog catcher in 1937 in Lower Manhattan. I catch mongrels all day. No starchy. <laughs> so you can't. It's not. No starch. No clean. I can't wear that. He said, well, this is what you're wearing. I said, I'm not wearing it. I mean, I, I, I do that. I have no censor. 
you know, if I get angry, I'll be angry. Right. I'm, I, I, I don't care where I am or who you are. You know, I, I, I can't control. Uh, thank God I don't get into fights, but I do get angry and let you know it. And so I'm, I'm, I'm angry at this guy. So he says, all right, you won't wear this? I said, no, I'm not going to wear it. No, I'm not going to wear it. And also in my back of my mind is John Houston. He directed The tra- Treasure of Sierra Madre. There wasn't a clean mark in the entire movie. It's just all dirt. It's dirt and gold and, and, and old guys, you know. And I'm, so I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, I got to make my mark with this, with John Houston. So yeah. I'm not going to take this guy. So he says, all right, if you won't wear this, we are going to Mr. Houston. And I go, fine, man, let's just do this. He had stuck up for me at the audition. <laughs> you know, this guy doesn't know who he's. Okay. <laughs> so, he, and, and now it had rained the night before, but it was sunny out. And he's, he's now outside. Uh, John Houston shooting outside. So we walk and there's puddles all over, but there's dry spots. We're fine. And it's a clear blue sky. We go over and John Houston is doing the exact same thing at the other. He's sitting on his chair. He's all alone. He's watching TV at the TV village. He's watching his rushes. He's, you know, really into it. He hears us coming. He turns, he sees us walking and he says, uh, okay, what's the problem, Henry? I mean, he just like read it. <laughs> okay. What's the problem, Henry? That's the guy's name. Henry. Right. So he goes, what's the problem, Henry? He's jaunty jolly. And Henry comes up and he's really mad now because I'm I'm not buying his anger or his authority. Right. And he, he goes, he walks up to me. He's got this, he's walking like it's like a platter, like it's like a silver platter. He's going like this. He's got <laughs> this actor, and he's pointing to me, this actor will not put this costume on. This is his costume. And uh, he, he's standing there. And John Houston goes, is it very casual? He goes, uh, is that true, Larry? Go, yeah. Why won't you put the costume on? Because it starts, man. Because, you know, it's supposed to be filthy. I mean, this is a depression. I mean, this is a, I'm a dog catcher. There's mongrels and dirty dogs. You know, I'm carrying them around. I can't, I can't put that on. Henry, is this true? Is this what he said? Yes. Okay, he gets up. He says, give me, give me the costume. So he hands him the platter. <laughs> so John Houston gets up and he walks away walks away from us and as he's walking away he's pulling it apart <laughs> <laughs> the sound of starch shirts being unfolded yeah, he's trying to shake it out you know just get you know and as he's walking and as he's shaking it out and opening up the its coveralls he walks with his new italian beautiful leather italian loafers into the middle of a puddle the puddle is about that that deep oh my god and two inch puddle those are what is he doing? His socks are all wet. That's what I was thinking. His socks are wet. Never mind the shoes. <laughs> and he takes the, the costume and he drops it in the puddle. And then he walks all over it with his wet shoes. <laughs> walks all over it and he's stomping on it. You know, and he's very casual. He's not angry. He's, not, you know, he's, he's very into doing what he's doing. And then he bends over and he picks it up with two fingers. Picks it up and he holds it out because it's dripping wet. <laughs> And he walks very casually back to Henry and he hands it to him. He says, Henry, take this and dry this out and put it on this actor. Thank you, Henry. Thank you, Larry. <laughs> he solved both your problems <laughs> and back to his TVs. And I said, that's a director, man. That's a guy who knows what he wants, what he does, and he doesn't give up about anything. That's awesome. That's my that's my favorite story of that all. That is a great story. John Houston, man. He that's, is John Houston. He is. And he John. hasn't eaten long pig. <laughs> right. And you know what long pig is? Yeah. What is long pig? Well, he's been around the world, you know, and he's a famous all around the world. Yeah. 
And uh, he found a tribe in Africa that were, were cannibals. Now, it was only on special occasions, like re religious occasions, and, and they don't just go around and kill people. Sure. There has to be a particular reason that this person has been killed. But they eat them. They eat, they eat them. And cooked human beings by the natives, by cannibals, are called long pig. Oh, Guess what? I never heard that. That's... Well, I, I read his autobiography. <laughs> He, uh, I, I, he's not proud of it. Right. I mean, he says in the book, I mean, oh my God, he tried to, he says, well, I didn't know I was eating it or I had heard it was, but it was verified that I had eaten long pig. Long pig. Oh my uh, goodness. But he's, you know, you just, you just, you just want to work for the guy. And he never gave me any direction. Great directors don't give any directions ever. Right. Woody Allen, John Houston, John, John, John Houston, John Hughes. Mm -hmm. I a couple. Nice. Larry, man, I definitely appreciate you coming on and hanging out with us. Um, I'm going well, thank to. Thank you for having me. No, it's been my pleasure, man. It's been a joy just listening to some of the amazing stories. And I know we have only scratched the surface of yeah. what you've well, been able to. Those kind of stories that I tell on Patreon, it's just a regular program. I mean, once a week for a half hour, I just spew these. That's going to be awesome. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that out. So anyone listening, man, when he gets it up and launched, man, go to thereallarryhankin.com and check out his Patreon and get more and more of these stories. Larry, thanks so much for hanging out with us today, brother. Thank you. All right. There you have it, my dark horse friends and family. Larry Hankin dropping Hollywood level bombs on us this week. What thoughts resonated with you? Let me share the ones that uh, kind of stuck in my head. Thought number one, absorb things. Now, you've heard me talk about this before, but Larry told his story of why he originally uh, got into poetry, and that was to get laid. And as a former teenage boy, I could totally vibe with that, right? But the lesson that I'm truly pulling out of the story was what happened in his life after, you know, when he sat down to write. All that past poetry exposure began to come out. His experiences with that poetry were always there, waiting and untapped. It wasn't until he went into it that they began to flow. And it wasn't like he was some genius. You see, I believe there's this misconception that most successful business leaders achieve greatness because they are just insanely smart. Geniuses even, right? Now, mind you, when you look at people like, you know, an Elon Musk, a Mark Zuckerberg, Reed Hastings, and Warren Buffett, excuse me, Warren Buffett, that could be true, right? I think they're probably geniuses in their own right. I mean, after all, they themselves have reached far higher levels of success than their peers. And I can say without a doubt, they are extremely sharp. I'd even go so far as to say they're probably smarter than me and maybe even you. But... We, you and I, can still tap into a, a vast wealth of knowledge and intelligence if we simply intentionally absorb things. Now, it's better if we have a little loftier goal than just getting laid or finding a mate, but hey, that's still a viable goal too, right? I, I can, like I said, I can vibe with it. Uh, on Wednesday in episode 202, I want to chat with you about how to be successful by being a sponge versus a genius. I want to dive deeper into this topic of absorbing what is useful for you now as well as in the future. Thought number two, 
learn from your hard times. Larry shared his story of being homeless for, I believe it was over a year, as, as well as other tough times that he's been through, but they didn't break him. He learned from them. Perhaps it was more of him absorbing things, but either way, he was able to take away valuable lessons from hard times that helped him move forward. Uh, Friday in episode 203, I want to chat about the five hard lessons every entrepreneur is going to have to learn. I want to spend some more time chatting about some key lessons that all us entrepreneurs are going to have to learn. The choices, whether you learn them through someone else's story or through your own. Thought number three. Only remember what makes them laugh. Larry, back in his stand-up comedy days, had this knack for remembering what made his audience laugh. Now, as he made the rounds of the comedy clubs in Greenwich Village, right, on multiple clubs in the same night, he would chain all these small successes together, uh, all these successes in making people laugh. So by the time he got to the end of the night, he would have honed a three to five minute set down to the core nuggets that made his audience laugh through the entire set. Okay, Tracy, that's all well and good, but I'm not in stand-up comedy. Okay, well, you can chain together your successes, right? You can use them in different ways, right? Uh, one of the ways you can do that is by paying attention to what your audience likes, what your audience reacts to and resonates with. And then two, you can stop doing that which isn't working. On Tuesday, in the live in the Facebook group, I'm going to dive a little bit more into this and, and share some more thoughts around that. Thought number four, find your audience. Larry shared the story of getting his first nightclub booking and how he needed uh, to start finding his audience. Uh, but previously in the Greenwich Village coffee houses, during open mic nights, he had a knowledge of of his audience and what made them laugh and what made them tick. But now he had new variables to contend with. I mean, he even had people lunging at him with beer bottles. Okay, that's a new variable you don't want to contend with. Things are different when you level up, right? Now he had to find his audience and speak to them. Here again is yet another lesson we entrepreneurs can glean from those not directly in our world. We too need to find our audience. On Thursday in the Dark Horse Tribe Facebook group, I want to chat a bit more about targeting the right audience in a few simple steps. And then finally, thought number five, last but not least, live to be someone, some little girl, some little boy's dog catcher. What an amazing moment for Larry to have that little girl come running to him in pure excitement to meet the dog catcher from Annie. I want you to get out there and live your life in such a way that you're striving to be, that striving to get, striving to be some little girls or some little boys dog catcher moment. Yeah, wouldn't that just be awesome? All right, so what inspiring tips or thoughts resonated with you? Hmm? Whatever they were, take some time today, write them down, and then get out there and put them into action. Get out there, run your race, get your results, and let me hear about them. Seriously, you can email me, tracy at darkhorseschooling.com, or come on over into the Dark Horse Tribe Facebook group. There'll be a link down here in the show notes, and share the tips or ideas that you came away with, how you put them into action, what results you gained from them, and heck, I'll probably even bring you on the show. Dude, I was on the same show that Larry Hankin was on. How awesome would that be? All right. Next week, our interview episode guest is Kurt 
Casino. Now, he's the founder of Hype Life Brands and also the co-founder and CEO of Goodfetch. And Goodfetch is a, a finance tech comparison shopping platform. That's a mouthful, but it's for consumers, right? And it solves a decades-old problem. It enables consumers to get out there, shop, and compare 20 major carriers and buy insurance in under 10 minutes. And they can buy it from whoever they want. They can buy it however they want. And guess what? No sales calls, no spam, no BS. Yeah, it should have always been this simple, right? Yeah, well, now it is. Now, I know you want to keep getting all these valuable tips and inspirational stories and the, the amazingly inspirational stories from the podcast guests I'm looking to bring on here. So please go on down there, hit that subscribe button. While you're there, give us a five-star rating. Leave us some kind words in the review. Ask some questions. Heck, go ahead and put in some suggestions. I'm happy to read every single one of these. And of course, do not keep all this entrepreneurial G-O-L-D all to yourself. Share this podcast with other entrepreneurs and business owners that you know will get value from it. And with that, I'm going to leave you as I always do. Think successfully and take action. Thank you for listening to the Dark Horse Entrepreneur Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Check us out at www.darkhorseschooling.com. All right. My name is Tracy Brinkman.